Okay, so this is pretty cool. A couple months ago, we turned five. Five years old. I didn't want to make a big deal about it because, I don't know, I was tired. I don't really know. But it is an accomplishment, and I want to celebrate first with a sound effect. Okay, that's enough. And second, I want to celebrate by playing one of my favorite interviews we've ever done, ever. And that is with Roxane Gay, who from day one of the show was at the top of my dream list. Roxanne Gay's work has consistently shined a light on the things we're missing or not talking about when we talk about gender, fatness, our bodies in general, sexual violence. And I'm very proud that this writer, who has as much impact and influence as she does, is a part of our community. You'll hear me ask a question about that. This was recorded in 2019, originally for the Luminary app, and at the time, I really didn't see her being publicly acknowledged as a queer writer. It was her other identities that were the topic of interviews and stories, and I'm really happy to say that now, three years later, that is no longer true. She is an essential and now recognized part of the modern queer canon. So thank you so much to everyone who's listened these last five years, and if you're down, I'd love to do five more. From The Advocate Magazine, in partnership with GLAAD, I'm Jeffrey Masters, and this is LGBTQ&A. A few years ago, you wrote that the older people get, the more culturally invisible they become, mm -hmm. as writers and as people. Yes. From the outside, looking at you, that seems to not be the case. Well, yes. I mean, the things that are oftentimes generally true, there are always exceptions to the rule. And I happen to be entering the middle of my career at the middle of my life instead of much earlier the way some people do. And so I, I'm experiencing a level of visibility that is deeply uncomfortable, but that is also fairly abnormal for women my age. So that's very interesting and uh, weird. I also think it's abnormal for writers in general. It's very abnormal for writers. One of the reasons I'm a writer is because I don't like attention. And so imagine my surprise when that ended up being the very thing that my career has gotten me. Like one of the great things about being a writer is that you get to sit in your home or wherever you write and nobody really knows who you are or what you look like. And I just really appreciate that. From the outside, again, since Bad Feminist, it seems like your career has had this massive upward trajectory of essay collections, editing essay collections, mm. films. And I just wonder if you have experienced failures professionally in that time, time that we've been seen. Really? Yeah, you never see the failures. I wrote an episode of a TV show that I thought was good, that the studio hated, and so they fired me, which sucked, and that was last year. So I experience failures all the time, and I try to talk about them, but people don't really seem to be interested in failure, and they don't want to hear about how many failures it takes to get to the success. Uh, my first blog, in fact, was called I Have Become Accustomed to Rejection. And I wanted to blog and I needed a schedule and I was getting rejected all the time because I was sending my work into the world. And so I thought, well, this will keep me on schedule because surely I'll get a lot of rejections. And I did. And so anytime I got a rejection, I blogged all my feelings about it and just talked through like, do I need to edit this piece or do I just need to try again? Um, was it a great rejection that made me feel good about myself or was it an impersonal rejection? So failure is really important to a writer and also painful. But I guess in the example of the TV show that mm -hmm. never aired, that is something that was not public. 
Yeah, well, the TV show is going to air. It was a miniseries for Netflix. And so they actually ended up going with a different writer. And when you are writing on in that way, oftentimes it doesn't make the news because it wasn't my show. It was someone else's show for which I was just writing an episode. So it's not something that's really going to make the news because most people don't know who's writing episodes of shows and they don't care. And you don't know that they've written the episode until it airs. And now they'll never know unless you're in the WGA and you see the credit there. <laughs> yeah. Now that you are experiencing less rejection, has that success had an impact on your mental health? Um, no, because I experienced a fair amount of rejection. I, I experienced a healthy amount, I think. I mean, of course, certainly there are things that I, I don't face rejection for anymore. And I have more opportunities than I can possibly accommodate with the rest of my life. But you know, the only thing is that even though I meet with a fair amount of success, I, I still doubt it and I don't trust it. And I always worry that this is going to be the last opportunity and that I'm going to fail on the next thing. And I'm going to fail so spectacularly that I'll never work again. And then I'll just also have a lot of imposter syndrome, which people say isn't real, but it is, in fact, very real. Um, so... There are those things that I deal with, like I think every other writer, because that's what we do. See, I find the concept of imposter syndrome to be so comforting mm -hmm. because I'm like, oh, everyone has this feeling. Oh, yeah. thank God. I can't ignore it. Yeah, everyone does have this feeling. Um, and I honestly worry about people who don't doubt themselves. Now, I do think some of us take it to an extreme. And I am one of those people like where sometimes I just have to sit back or my partner will just say, like, what are we doing here? Why are you doubting yourself? And it can be really debilitating, but I um, also find it very comforting when people I admire or envy uh, professionally are like, oh, I just don't know why, what I'm doing here, if I should be here. And I'm just like, yeah, tell me more. <laughs> <laughs> I guess I'm a little bit just surprised to hear that because I would have thought that success at your level would have changed how you move through the world. Oh, God, no, I wish. <laughs> no, it's not, a, it's not a magic pill, unfortunately. And, you know, the thing is, once you achieve a certain level of success, I think most of us who are very ambitious move the bar. And so it's not enough. You don't even enjoy it. You just keep moving the bar higher and higher and higher and trying to achieve more and more and more. And like oftentimes you don't even pause to take a stock of what you've done. You just think, oh, OK, on to the next thing. And, oh, I need to try this bigger thing. Do you think that you've gotten the recognition that you deserve? Yes and no. I have gotten the recognition I deserve from my communities. I don't feel like I've gotten the recognition I deserve from some of the gatekeepers um, in the community at large. When you say community, do you think that you are considered a queer author? I fucking hope so. <laughs> yes, I really hope so. I think I am, especially because I am openly bisexual and... A lot of people, for whatever reason, gravitate toward that because I think a lot of times bisexuality becomes invisible in the community. And I understand why, because a lot of people think, oh, pick a side. And we're like, ha don't have to. So I do feel very seen by my community. I don't know that I'm talked about in queer discourse as much as other queer writers, but I do feel recognized by my community. That's great to hear because I... I don't always see you included in the mm -hmm. queer canon in the way I want to mm -hmm. as a fan. And... I have to wonder if it's, I mean, a lot of reasons, but also you came out punching with this label, Bad Feminist. Yeah. And I wonder if that autom automatically makes you a woman writer for the rest of your life. I think in many ways it does. And, you know, publishing is a very weird 
environment because oftentimes they pigeonhole you as one thing or another, as the queer writer or the black writer or the trans writer um, or the Asian writer. And it's really hard to break free from those categories. And that's why I've deliberately done something different for every project. And oftentimes people are like, wait, what? You're doing what? And that's on purpose. It's so that no matter what kind of container you try to keep me in, I've got range. Don't worry. So with Bad Feminist, because it ended up being so popular, which was not expected. People do definitely think of me as a woman writer and as a feminist writer, and I think they think those are separate from being queer, which is very, very odd, because particularly when you think about intersectionality, you cannot separate out these parts of your identity. I'm a woman and I'm queer and I'm black and I'm fat, and I try to um, inhabit all of these identities in my writing as best I can. And so when the community doesn't seem to recognize this multiplicity, it can be very frustrating. Um, but I just let them do what they're going to do, and I just keep writing what I want to write. With your bisexuality, mm-hmm. you ha- joked on Twitter that you're on a dick sabbatical. Oh, I'm very, very much on a dick sabbatical. <laughs> um, and I guess maybe that's not a joke. No, it's the truth. It's the truth. I'm 44, and you just get to a certain age where you're like, I, I can't work with men anymore. That's just too much. But so, I'm still attracted to them of from a distance. I mean, this is just the proof of bisexuality, right? Yeah. You're still attracted to them, even though you I, hate dis- them. <laughs> I mean, despite my best efforts, uh, I'm very, you know, and but I don't know that I would ever be in a relationship with a man again. Is that something that has come out of this political climate and the Me Too movement, or has it started before no, that? It's just men. Like, they're just, oh, my last, I wasn't even a boyfriend. The last man I dated, like, six years ago was just such trash. I just thought, you know, what am I doing here? Like this, I'm not 16. It's time to move on from this. And I allowed myself that. And I'm just like, no more assholes, Roxanne. Let's try something different. And and so I've been doing something different. And also just women are great. As someone who predominantly dates men, I agree with everything you're saying. Yes. I mean, they're just so much work. People are always like, oh, women, that's a lot of work. And I'm like, look, women are extremely high maintenance. But they're high maintenance in a way that I find very attractive. I love me a high maintenance woman. Like oh, the higher right. the maintenance, the more I'm like, let's date forever. <laughs> Do you consider yourself high maintenance? I'm not high maintenance. Okay. <laughs> Ask my girlfriend and she'll probably say something different. But no, actually, I'm not high maintenance. I'm actually too low maintenance. I'm working on increasing my maintenance level. Oh, I like that. Yeah. I have a simple question, but mm-hmm. I like labels. And I just mm-hmm. wonder, do you consider yourself a butch? I do. I consider myself like a soft butch. Sure. I've never heard you talk or write about that. I'm working on an essay about it, actually. I wrote briefly about it in um, Hunger because I was really hardcore butch in my early 20s and stone butched um, for that matter. Then I realized, oh, this doesn't feel right. It's not. I was doing it more for self-protection than I was doing it for who I really am. And... In my 40s, I found that, oh, no, I definitely have butch tendencies in the relationship. I'm definitely the butch one, and I do date femmes. And it's just been more comfortable. But, you know, like, I'll get my nails done. I don't really wear makeup unless I'm on TV, but I will. I'm not opposed to it. I'm not opposed to femininity, which I can never say. So so I go with soft butch. I love that. A little, you know, rounded around the edges. You used to write a lot of erotica. Mm -hmm. Do you still do that? I don't. I just put the sex right into my fiction as is. I don't need to put it in a a genre context anymore because when I started writing erotica, it was because that was the only 
place where I could find editors willing to take my stories. And also they paid $50 a story, which is still the going rate. <laughs> and I just loved it. And I, I realize now that I just wasn't mature enough as a writer. But once I started publishing in more mainstream publications, I just basically was putting the same stories in mainstream publications. Oh, wow. Because I didn't know if erotica writers are not considered like respected writers. They're not. In many ways, uh, you know, a lot of people don't talk about erotica, and even though they read it, it's a very popular genre. Tons of writers do it. They do it under different names, but I'm not ashamed. I have no problem. I would do it again. I've edited an erotica anthology, and, you know, sex is good, and writing about sex that is good is very good, so I enjoy it. And we are still in a place in society where having a large person say that as radical. Mm -hmm. Very much so. Um, because people think that when you're fat, you are sexless and oftentimes genderless and that you don't have a sex life of any kind, that people don't see you as attractive. They really do think like all these men on Twitter who are insulting me all day, they genuinely seem to think that I'm just sitting in my house by myself. It's really adorable. Like, oh, bless your heart. Bless your heart. And they also think that men aren't interested. And I'm just like, look, I could pull a dick today. Let's just get it together. I choose not to. You're welcome. They're very frustrating. Well, I mean, we talk about representation all the time in this podcast. And mm -hmm. when it comes to fat representation, mm -hmm. the media has taken away all sexual desire from they fat have. people. Because so many people see fatness as unattractive, as unhealthy, as unhappy. And it's very hard for people to consider fatness in anything beyond what the diet industry and the fitness industry tell us, and also uh, the medical industry to some extent. That can be really frustrating and really painful because what do we do about our sexuality when the world does not want to consider us sexual? I don't know if you've seen Shrill yet, but it's a really good show. It's problematic, but very good. And in it, we see fat women who are sexual. People are like, oh, surprised. And, you know, she has the same trash boyfriend that anyone else would have. It's not because she's fat that he's trash. He's just trash because he's trash. And I think that's really groundbreaking that she gets to be sexual, that she gets to decide, you know what? This is not acceptable. You have to treat me better. I deserve better. And then she has sex with her roommate's brother. Spoiler alert. And... You know, there's fat is not, not even part of the conversation. He's just really into her and it never comes up. And that's also great that she's just allowed to be a young woman in her sexual prime or nearing her sexual prime. When do you consider your sexual prime was? Oh, I'm living it right now. <laughs> oh, really? Yeah. I still look forward to. Yes. I find 40s work really well because by the time you're 40, 41, 42, you know what you like. And you're more comfortable, for most people, there are always exceptions, but you know what you like and you're more comfortable asking for it. You're less self-conscious. You're more willing to experiment and just try things that might not work out, but still, hey, why not? Let's give this a go. It took you to reach your 40s to be able to say oh, that. Oh, for sure. For sure. Because during my 20s, I just had sex with whomever and had, and it was never about my pleasure. It didn't even cross my mind that my pleasure was something that mattered. In my 30s... I did have, actually, I was in a good relationship in graduate school. Um, but still, I was just so full of self-loathing that I just thought I should be grateful that I'm in a relationship. Let me not rock the boat by saying, oh, could you move to the left? 
But once I turned 40, I just stopped caring. And, you know, I just also was more comfortable with admitting what my desires were. For me, once I've done that, it has been very freeing. And it has made having a sexual life much more interesting and much more satisfying. While we're talking about sex and love, one of my favorite things you've written is mm-hmm. about love. Which one? The New York Times piece? The New York Times piece. Yeah. It was called Where the Hell is the Love of My Life? Mm-hmm. And how did you know I was going to ask that? I just guessed. Okay. Well, you wrote in that, as for soulmates, I do not believe such a thing existed until I did. Mm-hmm. That's a big change. Yes. First of all, how do you define a soulmate? You know, I think a soulmate is just that person with whom you feel entirely complete. Like, when you're with them... The world falls away. Your problems, they don't disappear, but you feel like you can handle them. They're just that person, the one person in the world that you feel this incredibly intense connection with. And that connection can never be broken, whether you're together or not. Do you find it difficult to write about love? I do find it difficult to write about love because, you know, love is so complicated and it's also just incredibly simple. It's also very private. And so... It's challenging to write about love and maintain some semblance of privacy, which is why I actually don't write about my relationships. It's just too much, like, to put stuff out in the world. I make deliberate choices, but I don't want to expose the best parts of my life and the most private parts of my life to people who are really insensitive and not at all equipped to respect boundaries and things like that. And also you just want to save something back for yourself. And so I struggle for that reason, but also because like, how do you name this unnameable thing, this overwhelming and all-encompassing thing? And how do you do it without sounding like a romance novel? And that's why I think so many people repeat the same cliche phrases because it oh, is absolutely. indescribable. It we is. Just click. And so we it just right. go with the cliches because that's the best available tool that we have for articulating this experience of being so overwhelmed by your feelings for someone else. When you say that it is one of the best parts of your life Mm -hmm. and you don't want to write about that, I think that makes you pretty unique as a writer. Yeah, I think so. I mean, I think a lot of times women, especially, and queer writers, are we're expected to cannibalize ourselves and give everything of our existence to the reader. And when I decided that I was going to write about sexual violence, sex, politics, the body, and things like that, I knew I was going to have to have very firm boundaries or I was going to end up cannibalizing myself in ways that would ultimately end up being really uncomfortable and untenable. And so I just made that decision and I've stuck to it and it's served me really well. And I I highly recommend it to everyone who asks me for advice of, you know, how do I do this? It's just, yeah, it's a lot. Because I tend to hear people nowadays say, if you're dating me, you're content. Yeah, and that, I think that's insane. And why would you do that? That means you don't, like, I guess that's a judgment, but how much do you value your relationship if you look at it as content? Um, my relationship is not content. My relationship is um, like the safe harbor from content. I know that when I'm with her, I don't have to think about my audience and my following and my work. I can just be myself, like the most genuine version of myself. And I know that that most genuine version of myself will be accepted. And that's really freeing. And so I I don't ever think about making it into content. When you wrote that you did not know that soulmates existed until you did, were you referring to your current relationship? No, I wasn't. Oh. Different relationship. 
So when a relationship ends, does your love for that person continue no. forever? Oh, yes, it does. Absolutely. Well, not not every ex. There are plenty of exes for whom I have no feeling or really hard feelings. But I, I think for some people, especially someone who is a soulmate, those feelings never go away, which is why it's such a powerful relationship. So we can have multiple soulmates? I don't know. That's a good question. I don't know if we can have multiple soulmates. I know some people believe that, and I can see how, for sure. How many times have you been properly in love? Three. Definitely three. Which is better than none. And then I've just had a lot of mediocre relationships where I thought I was in love. And I was really actually just in love with the idea of being in love. Well, and you wrote that in that piece, yes. which I liked. Yeah, I mean, and I think a lot of us fall fall prey to it. Like, life is lonely. And so when someone demonstrates a modicum of interest in you, it's also um, kind of freeing to just be like, yeah, I feel the same way. And you just sort of say it instinctively. The idea of love versus the reality of love. Mm -hmm. I think the majority of people would agree on that, but that's not simple. No, it's not simple. And it's taken me a long time and actually quite a fair amount of therapy to be able to understand the difference and to recognize the difference in my own feelings towards others. With the sexual abuse you mentioned earlier, mm -hmm. correct me if I'm wrong, but I believe in Bad Feminist, you said that it happened mm -hmm. in broad strokes, but it wasn't yes. until Hunger where you shared the details yes. of your rape. Mm -hmm. For everyone who doesn't know, you were 12. Yes. And I want to know, how did you decide how and when to disclose those details? You know, I think that you tell the audience what they need to know to contextualize what it is you're trying to say. And so when I wrote What We Hunger For, the essay in Bad Feminist, I knew that the broad strokes were going to get the point across because I was really writing about YA literature and this idea that young people can't handle darkness in literature, when in reality, we deal with darkness in life all the time as young people. And so it's totally fine to put it into books. And so I don't think the details were needed there. But with Hunger, which was a memoir about my body, you know, to understand where my body was when I wrote that book, you have to understand what my body went through when I was a child. And so it became necessary. And that's why I included it. You've had to talk about mm -hmm. this so much. Mm -hmm. Has that desensitized you to it in a way? In some ways, definitely. Like, when I'm going to go do an interview, I just prepare myself like, OK, you're going to have to just suck it up and talk about this for X number of hours. And then afterwards, you can feel what you need to feel about it. Uh, so it's gotten much easier, especially because I had to go on tour with it. And the press was such a shit show for that book, especially the international press, that I um, got really used to separating myself from the work and being able to talk about it without feeling like I was being traumatized. But I saw the press tour for Hunger Unfolding. Oh, yeah. And I was following all the different conversations you were having and the lack of sensitivity that people had mm -hmm. regarding your, your sexual assault as well as your body. Mm -hmm. And it felt like everybody was learning in real time. Yes, they were. I hope that the next writer, the next writers who write about fatness will hopefully have a better experience. And I'm not the first writer to write about fatness in any way, shape, or form. I think that with each of us who does it, the media gets slightly better, but the increments are so minuscule that it's appalling. I think what surprised me the most is that everybody 
knows fat people, right? Mm -hmm. They're in our family. (laughs) Everyone does. I mean, the world, especially in the United States, I notice how fat Americans are when I travel abroad. Yes. It's an actual issue. Like when I went to Sweden, I was like, oh, shit. Like, wow, this is a real thing. I also notice that I'm from the Midwest. And so when I go back to the Midwest, um, I notice it, too, because in L.A. and New York, people are much thinner on the whole, fat people are everywhere, of course, but you see it more when you like either leave the country or you go to the Midwest. And so when people act like this is this rare thing that's happening instead of no, the human body, especially in the developed world, is changing. And there are lots of reasons for that, including processed foods, more sedentary lifestyles, so on and so forth. So let's stop treating this like a, a, a mystery and an anomaly and just get on board. And I think what I found people's lack of sensitivity and understanding so concerning because I think a part of me assumed that you were getting shit about your body from strangers. Mm -hmm. But then I realized that if everyone has these biases, then you're getting it probably from people you know as well. Oh, all the time. Not anymore. Not as much anymore. But like, you know, my family, everyone in my family is very thin. My body has, and I write about this in Hunger, has long been a source of familial fascination and discussion and When I turned 40, I just told my parents, if you talk about my weight, I'm going to hang up on you. And so it took two weeks. And then they learned. Were you surprised that your weight loss surgery made headlines? Uh, No, I wasn't, because I had written a a book about fatness. So it was going to happen, which is why I tried to do it as discreetly as possible, because I wanted to at least have the time to prepare, do the surgery, recover before the public found out about it. And so I went to a surgeon who does a lot of actors and other visible people. And it was really, really good to have that level of discretion. People did see me at the doctor's office a couple times before the surgery, but they didn't know. It doesn't say like bariatric center or anything like that. And so that was really great. And then the nurses in the recovery room, when I woke up, she was like, oh, I know who you are. And I was like, oh, my God, don't tell the Internet. (laughs) (laughs) And she's like, oh, no, I won't. I mean, there are laws against that, but it was reassuring. And so I just was glad to have a few months to myself before I had to talk about it. But I knew I was going to have to talk about it because I was losing weight so quickly that sooner or later people were going to start saying something. Have you seen a change in how people relate to your body? For sure. I mean, I still have a long way to go, but it's amazing what like losing 160 pounds will do. People start treating you like you're human it's it's appalling i'm just it's been the most frustrating and repulsive part of the whole process is how much better people treat me and i'm like man i'm only like halfway there and this is how good you're treating me you really suck and so that part is frustrating you've had to relearn your entire relationship to food Mm -hmm. what has been the challenge beyond that though relearning my entire relationship to everything to other people to um, how I see myself, to how I fit into spaces. I have a lot of the hangups that I always had, like thinking, oh, I can't go do that. I can't, I don't have the stamina for that. I'm not going to fit in that seat. And then I go, I do it, and it's fine. I go, I sit in the seat, and it's fine. Like, my mind is not catching up to where my body is at, and that's really challenging. And that's a common thing. The surgery is brutal. I don't, I mean, I recommend it if you really want it, but I don't recommend it. And it's Challenging enough that they have the, they call it bariatric alcoholism and bariatric divorce. A lot of people get divorced after the surgery and a lot of people become alcoholics because they can't self-medicate with food anymore. So they turn to drugs or alcohol. 
I have many obese people in my family and mm-hmm. many people have had gastric bypasses. There's been three or four lap bands. Mm-hmm. And um, the first year after surgery is supposed to be the most difficult. Yes, it is. You're over that hump. Yes. How are you doing now? It's good, good. You know, I must say my first year wasn't so hard. I don't know why, but I think it's because I had considered doing the surgery for many years. So when I finally did it, it was just, I was ready. I really was. I had really hit the wall. And so I knew it was the right time. And it was very difficult, to be clear, but it was not an insurmountable year. And I also started going to therapy at the same time. And so that really helped. This year, like January 8th was the anniversary. And in the two months since, three months since, it's also been just, you know, still adjusting because every week my body is slightly different. And that's frustrating, but also good. And so I'm just going with the changes. And I just know more what to expect at this point. And... And know that it's only about another year and a half of radical change, and then things are going to settle, and that's good. And so I just know, oh, you just have to hang in there for another year and a half. Wow. You once said that Haitian culture Mm -hmm. is obsessed with fatness. Mm -hmm. Is that in a way that is different from American culture? For sure. Oh, really? Because, you know, Americans are actually very rude about fatness, but they're rude in a sort of of side-of-the-mouth way. And Haitians are just like, you're fat, what's up? like directly to your face. And that can be really exhausting. And they also have no problem like discussing it publicly in front of you. They just don't care. And uh, they think that they're doing it out of love and concern. But this idea that fat people are in need of concern, that we're a problem waiting to happen is is really false and really problematic. And so, you know, that uh, an entire culture views fat bodies this way because it's so different. In general, you're not going to see a lot of fat people in Haiti. It can be really challenging to to navigate. Like, how do I respect my family while dealing with their bullshit? And it seems like you have trained them how to talk I to you have, about that. I have. And my parents are here right now. <sighs> and... There be my dad is really good. He's really quiet. He's really friendly. But like my mom was like yesterday they arrived and she was like, oh, Roxanne, good work. You are doing very well. And I had already told her, don't like point things out. Just like go with it and keep these thoughts to yourself. And like she just kept making these little comments. And I just was just like little she's five, two. And I was just like, I'm going to put you in time out in like a trash can. You're quite a bit taller than her. I'm very much taller than her. My dad's six, four. Wow. Mm-hmm. It's hilarious to watch them walking down the street. It's just like, what's going on here? But my, if you're under six foot tall, my mom has nothing to say to you as a man. She's like, oh, no, she doesn't deal with she doesn't <laughs> she doesn't deal with short men and she doesn't deal with fat men. OK, your parents grew up in Haiti. Mm-hmm. They moved here. Had you guys. Where did you see representations of Haitian people in the media growing up? I didn't. They were, they were non-existent, um, except when I went to Haiti. And we oh. would go to Haiti in the summers. And so there I saw a representation like on television shows and movies, um, just walking down the street in books. It was great. Granted, I'm not seeking out Haitian representation, mm-hmm. like queer representation. Mm-hmm. But the only queer people I can think of is actually in an untamed state mm-hmm. of the book you wrote. Was that part of your desire to write it? Uh, yeah, definitely. I It was just a story that was interesting to me and I wanted to tell it and... There were very few 
American novels about Haitian people and especially the Haitian diaspora. And so it was important to me to tell a story. And it is just a story. And there are plenty of other Haitian writers who are writing. But yeah, I just wanted to add to the conversation in some way. An Untamed State, like many of your writing, deals with sex and sexual violence. Mm -hmm. Do you think that in order to get that right on the page, a writer has to have some sort of experience with it? No, I don't. I think it can help, but it's really important. And I see this more and more where people are acting like if you aren't from a certain culture, you can't write about it. And that's a really dangerous road to go down because what it suggests is that you don't have the right to write and think outside of your subject position. And if we can only write about what we know, then it's not fiction anymore. And it's not even creative nonfiction I do think the reason we're having this overcorrection right now is because the wrong people have written outside of their subject position and they've done so so badly that people are like, you know what, you had a chance and you blew it, so you don't get to play anymore. But I'm very resistant to this idea that you can't do it. I think you can do it, but you have to try, you have to research, you have to have an ethical code about it. Because there is a delicacy and a nuance to the act, but also the aftermath. Mm -hmm. And I don't see that being honored often. I think it was reading one of your books and reading about how someone had sex and then there was a soreness between the woman's legs. Mm -hmm. And I never read that before. Mm -hmm. And I realized, oh my God, this is a woman writing this. Mm -hmm. You know, I do like to be graphic or not graphic, explicit when writing about sex in consensual sex at that, because that's just my flow. And I think it's important because oftentimes when you read sex from men, from a woman's perspective, it's clear that they're just having a fantasy on the page and it's hilarious. Or they're just like really weird and gross. Sure, right outside of your subject position, but my God, talk to a woman. And I cannot help but to tie a line from everything you're saying to what you said earlier about how you didn't know you could ask for what you liked. Oh, for sure, for sure. And I think a lot of women are afraid to ask for what they like during sex, especially in heterosexual relationships, because men have so much of their ego tied up in being good at sex. And I think a lot of women, and I blame women for this in some ways, that we give them a pass time and again for bad lays and never give them any feedback or lie and we fake our orgasms. So they just think that in and out is what is going to get the job done. Like they don't even know that Most women can't have vaginal orgasms. They can't find a clit with a map. And so, um, you know, it's because we've given them the past, but we've given them the past because we're told that our desires don't matter. So it's really complicated, but I just resist. And I'm just, I just, whenever a woman is telling me about her unsatisfying sex life, I'm just like, let's take some responsibility here. Why haven't you said anything? How can I help you get to that promised land? And if he's just bad in bed and you love him anyway, that's fine. Like, girl, work it out. But if he's bad in bed and you're ambivalent about him, find someone who's good in bed. It's fine. I think we underestimate the importance of good sex. Like, a lot of people are just like, oh, it's not everything. Well, no, it's not everything. But my God, do you want to spend the rest of your life having bad sex once a week? I don't. And I think that the public has had this massive hardware upgrade in terms of our understanding of consent and the power dynamics that involved. Absolutely. And I really am one of my favorite things to talk about now is consent education, because I think we need it from preschool on in age appropriate ways. Like, no, you don't have to hug the uh, weird uncle. 
um, for a young child. And then the older they get, the more sophisticated the discussion of consent becomes. And also talking about enthusiastic consent. Since your writing deals with this topic, do you have you seen a change in the types of conversations around it? We're starting to have better conversations, especially since the rise of the Me Too hashtag in the public consciousness. People are at least acknowledging that enthusiastic consent is a thing and that uh, sober consent is a thing and that we should be thinking about and talking about and educating people about. Since you are so open about everything we've been talking about, I imagine that fans feel very comfortable confiding mm-hmm. in you. They do. Did anybody warn or prepare you for that? They did not. They did not. If you had known that I was going to get so many emails with and at events, people's like deeply personal and painful stories, I would have not. I would have just said, "Really?" Um, I get where it comes from, and I actually respect it. But I do always try to make clear when I respond to people that I'm not a therapist. I can hear you, but I can't fix you. And Ann Patchett actually um, gave me some really great advice when I did an event with her in Nashville. She told me that after she wrote her book about her friendship with Lucy Greeley, a lot of times fans would come up and tell her their very sad stories about losing their best friends. And so when she's not up to handling it at the end of an event before the signing, she tells the audience that she has her own sad story and she can't carry the sad stories of anyone else. So please don't share them. And to hear her articulate that boundary so clearly and so firmly and so unapologetically has given me a lot of strength to do the same when I just can't handle another story about someone who's been sexually uh, violated in some way. And it's like, I don't want to disrespect this story, but it's a lot to carry in addition to my own. And people have dealt with truly horrific things. And That's what keeps me doing the work I do. It's really as bad as we say it is. And I wish that more people would acknowledge the extent of suffering that people across the gender spectrum are dealing with when it comes to sexual violence. The stories that I hear, they just, you know, they keep me up at night. It's just not good. Really? Yeah, they do. Because you just think, oh, my God, how do you wake up every day? Like, how do you live with these kinds of horror stories like edited this anthology called not that bad um about how we minimize our own experiences but a lot of the things that i hear i'm like wow what i went through was not that bad and that's a hell of a thing to say because it really was that bad what i dealt with but the stories that i hear are just so much worse and it it just makes me worry about how do we address this how do we make sure that the next generation does not deal with this and i don't know I worry about that, but then on a personal level for these people, I worry that they are not talking to anybody else about this. That's what I worry about, too. You know, one of the key things I recommend is therapy, but I always have to do so with the caveat that I understand that very few people can actually afford mental health care in this country. It's extraordinarily expensive. This is the first time in my life I've had therapy before with insurance and this is the first time in my life where I can truly afford it, where I'm not sacrificing one thing to do this other thing. And my therapist, of course, is really expensive. Not of course, he just happens to be really expensive. And every time I get the bill, I just look at it and just think, what would I do? Like five years ago, five, three years ago, I would just walk around a whole hot mess. Well, a hotter mess than I currently am. And, you know, it just highlights that Oftentimes people can't go to their families because the predator is a family member or their family is hostile to 
reality and facing that this predation is happening to someone they love and they have no access to mental health care because they don't have insurance or they're on their parents' insurance or some other complication because they can't afford it or they live in a rural place where there's no access. Um, I've talked to people who are like, there's only one therapist in town and my abuser goes to that therapist. And, and so how do we deal with this? How do we even give people a space? And so I recognize that my work oftentimes opens the door and that's why I can't be so callous as to say, oh no, don't tell me anything. But I'm not equipped. Like I don't have any sort of background. I don't know what the right thing to say is other than fuck him and cut his dick off. And apparently that's not productive advice. It's already been done, actually. It has. Yeah. It has. And with good reason. So, yeah, it's, it's a lot to think about and to try and negotiate as compassionately as I can. You're able to articulate all these things very clearly and specifically. Mm-hmm. You wrote that in your 20s, they, that was a difficult time for you and that you you said you were like quote like completely insane i was were you able to talk about all this stuff then no i wasn't oh i never discussed any of this back then and that was why i was so insane for lack of a better word and it's not even in a casual way i truly had a break from reality and sanity and it was because i had kept this trauma to myself for so long and then you know once you've been traumatized oftentimes it makes you vulnerable to other kinds of trauma and predators seem to know like, ah, she's been marked. She's an easy mark. I'm going to get her. So it just created a really complex level of issues where I was dealing with this primary trauma, but all these other terrible things were also happening because I had made myself, not, I guess I had not made myself. I'm still working on that. I was made more vulnerable and um, it was challenging and I didn't know what to do. And so I wrote, thank God. So that's what got you out of it. Definitely, definitely. I've been writing since I was a kid, but in my 20s, even though most of that writing will never see the light of day, that was just sort of where I was putting what was functioning of my sanity and that ability to articulate what I had been through was going on the page, even if it wasn't specifically my story. I wrote literally hundreds of stories about girls being abused by men. I could just tell that it was my way of getting it out of my system in some way, like bleeding it out. Do you worry that since you've tackled so many taboos in your writing that we're going to expect that as a public every time you publish? Of course I do. And that's why I do something different with every project. And that's why I have some very fun projects coming up that have nothing to do with suffering or violence. And also I want to prove that I can write women's stories that are not grounded in sexual violence because you don't want that to be a trick. You don't want that to be the only story that you can write. And it isn't. I can write a happier story. And so I'm working on some happier stories. I'm excited for the happy stuff. Me too. Thanks for talking to us. Oh, you're more than welcome. It's been a pleasure. And that was the incredible writer, Roxanne Gay. Now, this is our last episode for a bit. Just a heads up there. We will not be releasing new interviews next month. But until then, I should note, Spotify just recently launched a rating system on their app. So if you're listening on Spotify right now, please open it up and give us five stars and leave a comment. This is a great way to let Spotify know that you like our show, maybe even love it, and for them to show it to more people. Things like that really are a big help. So thank you so much for doing that. We're brought to you by The Advocate Magazine in partnership with GLAAD. I'm Jeffrey Masters on Twitter and Instagram at JeffMasters1. Come find me and I'll see you there. Bye.